Hi, it's Lindsay from Tumble. I'm very proud to announce that Tumble has won a big award, the AAAS Kavli Science Journalism Award for Children's Science News. In February, I'll be traveling to the award ceremony in Seattle to receive it and to give a public talk about how to make science podcasts. If you're in Seattle on February 15th, 2020, come to my Meet a Scientist talk at 12 p.m. I'd love to meet you there, and it's free to attend as part of the AAAS Family Days, which is a weekend filled with science activities. We'll have a link to register and get more information on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. So, in celebration, we're featuring our two award-winning episodes this week. They are The Cave of the Underground Astronauts and The Science of Whiskers. We wanted to put them together for you into one package. You can think of this as Twix for Tumble. So, instead of chocolate and caramel and cookie, you get awesome science stories. We'll start with The Cave of the Underground Astronauts just after this. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're climbing deep into a cave to meet three underground astronauts. Underground astronauts? Like they're in hiding or something? <laughs> no. They're archaeologists on an expedition to find fossils from one of our ancient relatives. But like astronauts in space, they have some pretty special talents and a love of adventure. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Oh, great. Uh, hi, I'm Marina and Becca. <laughs> my name's Becca. And we have Kenny here Kenny. as well. Hello. I'm sitting at my desk talking over Skype to Marina Elliott, Becca Pichotto, and Kenny Molipanier. They're part of a team of archaeologists working in South Africa. But it's kind of an unusual interview setup. They're in a cave 30 meters underground. Whoa, that's like 100 feet. Sorry, Lindsay, give us a second while we try to get ourselves into a place in the cave that's actually reasonably comfortable and you can see us. <laughs> All right, the challenges of, you know, doing interviews from underground. So um, how do you get Skype in a cave? Is there just like a desktop in there when they got in? It's a, a, a lot of um, wiring and then Wi-Fi. Becca, Marina, and Kenny squeezed together to fit into the screen. They were wearing hard hats with headlamps and pants with reflective tape. They were sitting in what's called the Dinaletti Chamber of the Rising Star Cave System, about 50 miles from Johannesburg. It's the site of a major discovery in the history of humankind, Homo Naledi. Here's Becca. Homo Naledi is a early hominid. We don't know if it's an ancestor or probably more like a cousin. And it's about 250,000 years old. So far, it's only been found in this one cave system in South Africa. Hominid is the name of the group of species that includes modern humans and our extinct relatives like Neanderthals. The caves in this part of South Africa have been a hotbed of hominid discovery for the past hundred years. Homo naledi was one of the biggest finds ever. They found not just one specimen or one body, but 15. So how did they find this? Was there like a treasure map and a pirate going like, Arr, if you look here, you'll find my buried treasure of a bunch of monkey bones. <laughs> 
Well, it didn't happen quite like that. Back in 2013, two cavers were exploring the cave system when they found a tiny gap in the cave wall. They squeezed through it into an open chamber, and with the light from their headlamps, they saw bones literally scattered across the surface of the floor. Wow, but... If people had been exploring caves in the area for a hundred years, how did they miss these fossils just laying out in the open? Well, to say it's hard to get to the Dinaletti chamber would be a total understatement. I'll let Kenny describe how she, Becca, and Marina get there every day. Our first obstacle is the Superman's crawl. Uh, we would get down on our bellies and just wiggle our way through this tunnel. Oh boy, <laughs> that's that sounds like. Uh, I couldn't do that. (laughs) Yeah, there's lots of small spaces. Superman's crawl is less than 10 inches high. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And that's just the beginning. Next comes a climb up a jagged rock wall. And then you climb up Dragon's Back, jump over Leap of Faith, which is a meter um, distance leap from one point to the next point. (laughs) Dragon's Back, Leap of Faith. (laughs) My goodness. (laughs) This just sounds like... One of the most super intense things a person can do. And then we enter into what I call the crystal chandelier chamber, (laughs) where you like unclip your harness and sort of brace yourself for facing the chute. This is the gut-clenching part, the chute. It's what kept Dinaletti Chamber a secret for hundreds of thousands of years. It's literally a crack in the wall. And the chute has an 18-centimeter pinch point, which is where you hold your breath, say a little prayer, And squeeze through. And then, yeah, then you make it into the chamber, the fossil chamber. Hold on, did she say 18 centimeters? Yes, that's seven inches. That's like the size of two and a half Hot Wheels cars laid end to end. I love that that's your unit of measurement. Isn't that everybody's unit of measurement? Yeah. Yeah, so your entire body has to fit through the space of two and a half Hot Wheels cars. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I can't do that. What I really can't imagine, actually, is how someone thought to find this cave. (laughs) It's one of those happy accident kind of things. If the cavers hadn't been tiny people, too, they never would have found it. But getting there isn't the only challenge. Becca described the other creatures that they encountered on their way to work that morning. There were six or seven bats that we sort of woke up, I suppose, and they were trying very hard to figure out which way they should go to get out of our way. Ah, Not only have I been woken up early, but now I have to sit in traffic, too? (laughs) What a miserable way to start a bat night. (laughs) Anyhow, once the excavators get down there, they work up to eight hours. So... Okay, like, main question, do they get bathroom breaks? You know, if you decide while you're underground that you need to use the restroom, you have to wait till you get above ground to do that. So you have to plan ahead a little, uh, anticipate your needs so that you can get out through that 18-centimeter gap and through the Superman crawl and everything else. Okay, so, like, crawling through tiny cracks in the wall to look at ancient bones is, like, pretty unusual job. So how do you get it? Well, you answer a Facebook ad to be an underground astronaut. Here's how Kenny described finding the gig. I I was procrastinating, um, just trawling around Facebook and Instagram, and here was this ad, and I was like, I'm going to take it. So, like, what did the ad say? 
Well, first of all, you need to be small enough to fit through that 18-centimeter hole in a wall. <laughs> first thing was, can you fit through a small hole? <laughs> so you don't just need the body, you need the brains, too. The expedition needed people with skills in excavating fossils and studying them. Here's Marina. Um, you needed to be able to work well in a small team, not be claustrophobic, not be scared of heights, be willing to, you know, fly to South Africa for a month without pay and work underground in a potentially dangerous <laughs> environment. I mean, who wouldn't sign up to work in a dangerous environment for no pay? You'd have to be crazy not to do it. Yeah, I just read Adventure and I was like, yep, you're sold. <laughs> So if you love adventure and don't mind small enclosed spaces, like really, really small enclosed spaces, being an underground astronaut would be like a dream job. Yeah, you get the chance to be part of a huge discovery in early human history. On the original expedition in 2013, Marina and Becca helped collect the first bones of Homo naledi that had ever been studied. We excavated just one unit, which was basically 80 centimeters by 80 centimeters by 20 centimeters deep. We took some material off the surface, but all told, we ended up with about 1,500 fossil fragments. Wow, that's incredible, like having a 1,500-piece puzzle with no photo on the box. Yeah, and it was a species that no one had ever seen before. So definitely no photo on the box. <laughs> Scientists carefully constructed 15 skeletons from the 1,500 fossil pieces. Then they were able to imagine what Homo naledi would have looked like while they were alive. Becca kind of painted a picture for me. If you were to see a Homo naledi on the street, you would not think that it looked a lot like us. But it still has a lot in common with humans. It walked on two feet. Its feet, in fact, look an awful lot like ours. It was really short. Even the adults were under five feet tall. On the reconstructions, the head of Homo naledi looks kind of small for its body. Its brain was less than half the size of ours. Its forehead had a steep slope, kind of like an ape. Um, and then it has shoulders that are um, a lot like a gibbon. It also had long, curved fingers like a modern-day monkey. That suggests to us that maybe Homo naledi was still doing lots of climbing in some way. But the bones in its thumbs and wrists suggest that they could have used tools, which is like a really advanced skill for most species. So what does this discovery tell us about humans? Here's what Marina said. You know, the human family tree is a lot bushier than, than people sometimes make it out to be. It's not just a straight line from one ancient hominid species down to us. At the 350 to 250,000 year point, certainly in Africa, you know, anatomically modern humans were already on the landscape. So like we might have had some homo naledis over for a party. <laughs> or we could have been fighting with them. I mean, maybe both. <laughs> God, we're not inviting the naledis over again. <laughs> <laughs> they always smash the table and steal all the fruit. They're not even that good at using spoons. <laughs> Anyhow, scientists are starting to piece together what it would have looked like to have several hominid species on Earth at one time. The fact that we discovered Homo naledi so recently proves that there's still so much out there to find. It's pretty exciting to find a bunch of bones that belong to a creature that hadn't been described before in science. Um, that, you know, nobody would ever seen before. 
So if they were able to construct Homo naledi from that first expedition, why did they keep coming back to the cave? That's a really good question, and here's Marina's answer. I think it's really important not just to, you know, bring these initial fossils up and go, okay, we know all about Homo naledi, because we really don't. In other words, they want to know what more there is to discover, and there are definitely more fossils left. We've already hit quite a lot of bone. So what are they hoping to find out? I mean, one of the, I think, the the big questions is why and how were they getting into this deep area of the cave? The big mystery is how Homo naledi ended up in a place that's nearly impossible to access. Maybe there was an easier entrance to the cave that, you know, closed up sometime in the last 250,000 years. That's definitely a possibility that they're exploring. But how did so many bones end up there? There's no evidence that Homo naledi actually lived in the cave. No plants, no other bones of other animals, no nothing. Here's the best idea scientists have. The Dinaledi chamber was actually a burial ground. We're still working on the hypothesis that Homo naledi was deliberately bringing its dead into this very difficult to access space. Um, You know, we've been at it for five years now and we haven't found a better explanation. Many scientists don't believe that such a small brain species could have had funerals. That's part of the reason why Marina, Becca, Kenny, and others keep looking for more fossils that might give us more clues to the mystery. You don't sort of find the answer and that's the end of it and you can kind of wash your hands and go home. Every time we come out, we find something new and every time we find something new, we revise our you know, ideas based on the new evidence. So the whole funeral idea could be buried by the new fossils they find. Yeah, (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pun. Yeah, and that would be scientific progress to have a completely new idea in maybe just a few years. Okay, so how does one, not me, but someone, become an underground (laughs) astronaut? Just spend like a lot of time procrastinating on social media. That's one aspect. The other part is to actually get out there and do stuff. All three women told me that they couldn't have predicted that they'll be sitting in a cave, digging up precious fossils, and doing podcast interviews. But they all had adventurous experiences that somehow led them there. Marina had this advice. Try everything and anything. Try things you think you'll like. Try things you think you might not like. Do it safely, but be curious and get out there. Kenny, do you have anything you want to add? Adventure! (laughs) Thanks to all the awesome women I spoke to in the Dinaledi chamber. Dr. Marina Elliott, researcher at the University of the Witzwaterstrand in South Africa and lead excavator of the Rising Star Expedition. She's also in charge of the field crew. Dr. Becca Pichotto is the director of the Center for Exploration of the Human Journey at the Perot Museum in Dallas, Texas. In the cave, she's an excavator. Kenelo Molipiane is getting her PhD at the University of Witzwaterstrand and was a trainee on the Rising Star Expedition. To find out more about Homo naledi and the Rising Star Expeditions, visit our blog at sciencepodcastforkids.com. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this episode. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make all of the wonderful music you're hearing. Join us next time for more stories of science discovery.
Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about the science of whiskers. Surprisingly, animals just don't put them on in order to look cute and pose for videos. <laughs> Those long facial hairs are like an animal's sixth sense. From seals to mice, we're off to explore the wonderful world of whiskers. Baltimore, Maryland. My question is, why do seals have whiskers? I mean, it's obviously so they can join the Whisker Club. <laughs> we all want to be in the Whisker Club. That's the only reason men grow mustaches. Everybody just wants to belong. <laughs> Listeners, what do you think is the answer to Kara's question? And how would scientists study whiskers? Think about it. Before we got Kara's question, I had no idea that people study whiskers just on their own. But that all changed when I found Dr. Robin Grant. Yeah, so I'm Dr. Robin Grant. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in comparative animal behavior and physiology. That's a fancy way to say whisker scientist, which means she studies and compares how different whiskers work, including seals. So I look at all different mammals, so lots of fluffy animals. So just like she spends all her days looking at adorable animals. Yeah, which, you know, a lot of us do. That's true. <laughs> but whiskers are more than cute facial features. They're actually a big part of an important sense for many mammals. Touch. So even though I might be like a, a whisker biologist, if you like, what I am doing is studying the sense of touch in animals. Uh, and it just so happens that for most animals, and that happens to be their whiskers. Wait, so she's saying that whiskers are like facial hair that feels? Yes. That's crazy. It actually, it totally blew my mind. And Kara's question of why seals have whiskers is a great way to explain how they work. First, think about where a seal lives, mostly underwater off the coast. You can imagine it being quite sandy and murky and a little bit mucky. Um, so they can't rely on their eyes very much. When they dive under the water, their nostrils close together. They don't rely on their sense of smell. So what they're doing is relying on their sense of touch using their whiskers. So seals are most of the time swimming blind, except for their whiskers. Yeah, and they have incredible whiskers. So they have about 30 to 35 whiskers on each side of their face. Whiskers are big, thick hairs. And in fact, they're, they're so thick in seals, they almost look kind of plasticky. They're really, really thick, much thicker than the hairs on our head, much thicker than your cat's whiskers as well. Seals' whiskers aren't smooth like hair either. So they have these kind of bumpy in and outs that go all along all of their whiskers. And what this is for is to make them really stable in the water. And even more amazingly, they help them find food. And also they're so sensitive that they're able to detect the tiny movement that fish make as they swim through the water. What? These whiskers are so sensitive they can feel the wake of a fish? Like we can see the wake of a boat? Yes, exactly. And the fish swims in a wiggly line. The sail will follow it exactly. Man, that's some ninja-level stalking ability. I know. <laughs> Wait, but how do we know that that's what the whiskers are doing? Like, I'm assuming seals aren't just telling scientists their stalking secrets outright. No, the scientists have to offer bribes. They're like dogs. 
Um, so all they want to do is have lots and lots of fish. Robin told me about an extremely fun-sounding experiment she did with seal whiskers. So what we can do is actually train seals to do different tasks and see how they use their whiskers. So for example, um, I did a, a task that was training a seal to detect different sizes of disc. A disc? And so like something like a frisbee? Yeah, basically. And these different sized discs are a stand-in to find out how do seals know whether something in their environment is big or small. And that helps us learn about the many ways seals use their whiskers. Right. So in her experiment, Robin worked with a seal named Mo. And so what would happen is Mo lived with all his friends in the pool. And then I'd come along and I'd call him out and say, come on, Mo. And he'll hop out the water and come over to me. (laughs) Is there a scientific prize for most adorable study method? (laughs) This would win. And then in front of me, I have a setup. And there's a little ball that he pops his nose on in the middle. And then on either side, I put two different objects. And one will be a big disc and one will be a small disc. And what I'll do is I'll pop uh, headphones on him so we can't hear what we're doing. And I'll pop the blindfolds on him so we can't see. So he's only using his whiskers. Right, so the seal's wearing headphones and a blindfold. <laughs> hope we have pictures of that. <laughs> yeah. I hope. There's video. And then I'll tell him to go. And then what he'll do is he'll explore on one side to touch the big disc and then he'll explore on the other side and touch the small one. And then he'll go back and really kind of push over uh, the big one and say, it's this one. This is the big disc that I found. Uh, And then you give him lots of fish and lots of praise and then you you swap them all over and you try it again. Robin filmed every single one of these trials with Mo. And after enough trials, Mo went back to his friends in the pool, and Robin went to review all the video with her colleagues. And then when I looked through all the videos, which is like hundreds and hundreds of videos, we found that when they touch something, they orient, so they they always move right to the middle by their nose. So when Mo was exploring the disc underwater, like he was really touching it with his nose? Like Why? Now, the bit near their nose has loads of whiskers in. It's really, really densely packed, full of little short whiskers. And what they do is they stick all these whiskers onto the object, and then they count how many whiskers contact the object. The more whiskers that touch the object, the bigger it is. Whoa, so are they actually counting? Like one whisker, two whisker, three whisker, four, five whisker, (laughs) six whisker, seven whisker, more. That's a big fish. (laughs) (laughs) They're not saying the numbers in their head. It's kind of an intuitive way of putting together a picture of their murky world, just like we use our senses to navigate our world. We have amazing brains which take information from our eyes and our nose and our ears and our hands, and seals are the same. They just get to use whiskers to help build a picture in their minds. Right, and it helps them make decisions about things like where to haul out on rocks or how big a fish might be. Man, that's so cool. So why doesn't my beard work that way? So human facial hair doesn't really count as whiskers, even though we totally call it that. But our ancestors were truly whiskered. Probably the first mammals, the mammals that aren't even around anymore, they had whiskers. Each whisker has a muscle that controls its twitching and movement. 
And even though we lost our whiskers over the course of evolution, we got to keep the muscles. So humans have remnants of these whisker muscles uh, in our faces. If I grew a beard, could I train it to feel things? Be like, oh, wind's blowing from the east. You can do that with your face anyway. And I think a bus is passing a mile away. <laughs> How long are these whiskers? How very, long is this beard? Very long. <laughs> All right. Well, just as evolution did away with whiskers for humans, different animals evolved different kinds of whiskers. If at home you've got a guinea pig, you can see that they have quite a lot of whiskers. But actually, they're quite small compared to their body. Whereas if you have something like a mouse or a rat or a hamster, they actually have enormous whiskers compared to the size of them. You may have noticed if you've stared into the face of a cat, it looks like their whiskers are laid out on a grid system. And it seems like the best whiskered animals, so the ones with the longest whiskers um, and the most whiskers, usually have this very regular organization of whiskers, uh, which is weird as well. I will agree that cats are weird, and I'll add their whiskers to the list of reasons why. All right, but compare that to dog whiskers. Dogs' whiskers are kind of randomly laid out and pretty short. That's because dogs don't use their whiskers. Their sense of smell is much, much more powerful than their sense of whisker touch. It's a good thing they don't actually need to touch the poop they're sniffing with part of their faces. <laughs> Though based on most dogs I've known, they probably wouldn't mind. <laughs> um, so you can start to look and think about how long they are uh, how many they are, and how organized they are. I guess that seems like something we could do just by looking at adorable photos of whiskers on the internet. I know I'll be doing that. <laughs> so is that how Robin studies other types of whiskers? Well, she's looking at tiny movements with special whisker technology. And what we're interested in is, is the movement of the whiskers. So whiskers can move backwards and forwards in a process that is called whisking. Whisking? Even the technical terms are cute. I know. I'm, I'm literally never going to be over this. <laughs> um, a dormouse, for instance, can move their whiskers up to about 10 times per second. That's like a lot of whisks. <laughs> so to slow down the whisking and figure out how animals are actually using their whiskers, Robin uses a fancy high-speed camera, along with special lighting to film in the dark when many of the best whiskered animals are most active. The high-speed camera basically makes sure that we can see everything really nice and crispy clean. So coupling this, this, these amazing cameras and the special lighting, we're able to capture them doing all sorts of cool things. Robin actually builds special mini arenas for the animals to demonstrate different whisking skills. Sometimes we just film them in a, in a kind of open arena and see them exploring. Sometimes we build special climbing arenas to look at how they use their whiskers when they climb. That's so great. So she's really studying all types of whiskers in all kinds of situations. Yeah, but she told me seal whiskers are her favorite type of whisker. Well, that's pretty high praise coming from a whisker scientist. So let's ask our listeners, what's your favorite type of whisker? And now that you know how whisker scientists look at whiskers, can you find well-whiskered animals? 
Remember, well-whiskered means that they have many long, organized whiskers. Can you start your own whisker rating system based on the animal that you see? 10 out of 10 would whisk again. Thanks to Dr. Robin Grant, Senior Lecturer in Comparative Animal Behavior and Physiology at Manchester Metropolitan University. And thanks to Kara for sending in her awesome question. We'll have more from Lindsay's interview with Robin on our Patreon and CastBox Premium podcast feeds. It's just $1 a month to learn so much more from every Tumble episode. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if people had whiskers? (laughs) I think it'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? We'll also have more about whisker science on our blog, including a video of Robin's experiment with a blindfolded, headphone-wearing seal named Mo. That's on sciencepodcastforkids.com. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this show. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make all of the music. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery.